I'm the kind of kid who grew up loving playing tag and fencing to a certain extent is very similar to that. I try to hit you, you can't hit me, and we jump about in uh, <laughs> back and forth, no sidestepping. And that is pretty much what fencing is. Any kid who likes poking someone else and trying to avoid another person would probably like fencing. Hello everyone and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Today's guest is Shien Kim, a graduate student in the Pritzker School of Molecular Engineering at the University of Chicago, and a budding science writer whose stories can be found across the interwebs from massive science to physics work. Now, I'm sure Kim will join us again in the near future to talk about her fascinating nanoscale engineering work. But today, she's with us to talk about another passion of hers, fencing. Kim was an NCAA fencer for four years at Caltech and was the Caltech women's saber team captain her sophomore, junior, and senior years of college. Together, Kim and I are going to examine fencing's portrayal in Star Trek, including the recent Star Trek Picard episode titled Absolute Candor. But before we slap on our breeches and masks, let's get to know Kim's relationship to Star Trek a little better. I first saw Star Trek with a friend on her laptop I had no idea what Star Trek was, but my friend was a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> and that eclipsed everything about Star Trek. So the first time I watched Star Trek was not for Star Trek, it was more for Benedict Cumberbatch. So you watched Star Trek Into Darkness, which came out in 2013. And all I thought was, hmm, interesting, lots of action sequences. That's what Star Trek is about. Action. Space, CGI. CGI, ships crashing into planets. Things blowing up. People taking flights through space in spacesuits through really dense asteroid fields. Drama, conspiracy theories. Yeah, that's pretty much Star Trek Into Darkness. But now that you've seen more of Star Trek, do you think your perspective of what Star Trek is about has changed since that initial viewing of Into Darkness? Yeah, definitely. Um, my favorite part of Star Trek comes from the older series. My favorite is Voyager, and that is what Star Trek means to me. It's about the people on this planet and others coming together and working. The space travel is probably the least of it to me. I just love people standing there and talking. <laughs> you just love people standing there and talking. Right, and discussing and debating about problems that are very relevant to us even today. Why should someone not commit suicide? Why should we still have religious beliefs? Why is it valuable to stay true to the truths of our past, even though the truth might not be easy to hear? Yeah, Star Trek does a really good job of tackling those contemporary issues. And you're right, that's something that was probably left out of the newer movies, which were basically action films. And we may be returning to some of that deeper meaning in Star Trek Picard, which I know you've been watching and enjoying. 
you know, Picard seems sort of like maybe a meld between the two. It, it has the aesthetics of some of the newer Star Trek movies and thrilling action scenes, but it still has that heart to it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's got so many wonderful touchstones to the older series, The Next Generation, from playing poker to the theme of artificial intelligence and synthetic life forms to Picard fencing. And I think it would be really fun for us to have a discussion today about fencing because that's something that's so near and dear to your heart. For the uninitiated fencers in the audience, it's important to make clear that fencing is not one sport, but three. The three types of fencing are saber, foil, and epee. They're named after the subtly different weapons that are used, and each has a completely different target area that you must hit on your opponent's body to score a touch. In foil and epee, you score that point by thrusting the point of your weapon into your opponent. You have to really stab them. Stab, 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 stab. For foil, you're aiming for the chest. That's the only viable target. In epee, any part of the opponent counts. Now, it gets a little different in saber. In saber, you're aiming for any part of your opponent from the waist up. And also, you can use any part of your blade, not just the tip, to score a touch. So you can use the side of your blade, the tip of your blade, even the hilt of your blade. I've punched someone and scored a point that way. You've punched someone. Like, you literally whack them with your, with your own fist. I whacked them with the bottommost part of my blade very close to my fist. Yes. So like the hilt of the... No, not the hilt. It's the blade right at the tip of the hilt. Oh my goodness. Wow. So like literally any part of the blade touching any part of their body scores a point. Yes, but the point of it is... Haha. The point of it (laughs) is um, you want to try to touch them in a way that You just manage to touch them, but they can't touch you. So if you're already so close and you haven't scored yet, they might score on you first. So that's a very risky move to score with the bottom of your blade. You want to score with just the tip of your blade, just when they're running away. All the weapons have different target areas. The one I do, Saber, the target area is anything waist up. So the torso, the head, the arms, up to the wrists. So that allows you to do something really fancy called the skyhook. The skyhook is the equivalent of nutmegging in soccer. (laughs) And by that, I mean the dick move. The dick move or like the I'm going to show off and like, you know, embarrass you kind of move. The very unnecessary, this is not necessary to win, but I just want to make you look bad move. Uh So it's a kind of touch where someone rushes at you thinking that they're gonna win but you somehow flit out of their reach and you windmill one of your arm and by luck or by extreme precision and talent you catch them on their wrist and somehow you dodge their flying blade right when they're trying to swipe at your chest so it looks really fancy because you have this windmill motion of your arms and the annoying part is, is that your opponent doesn't feel anything at all. So most of the time they think they scored on you, but they didn't realize that you, they've been scored on. So they're rushing at you in a 
blaze of fury. Their arm is outstretched and it will hit you. But before their blade actually makes contact with your torso, your blade flying through the air majestically taps their wrist as you fall backwards and they don't even feel it. They strike you and they look at the score and... My light is on. You've just been scored on. It sounds like you've had experience being skyhooked on, Mike. <laughs> I may have had it done to me once or twice. Uh, maybe my very first bout ended in a skyhook that a very good female saber fencer for Caltech was the perpetrator of. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> um, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> now, with that exciting introduction to fencing... Let's examine the fencing scene between Jean-Luc Picard and Guinan in the Next Generation episode, Iborg. In this episode, the Enterprise crew rescues a Borg drone who's been severed from the Collective, a drone whom Geordi goes on to affectionately name Hugh. Guinan, however, has serious reservations— you see, her homeworld was decimated by the Borg, scattering her people throughout the galaxy. So, on the fencing strip, she attempts to convince Picard that Hugh's presence on the Enterprise could be a fatal mistake. So let me let me pause it when it's appropriate. Okay, is this is this a good view? Maybe we can do it. That's good. Okay, so from there. Equipment only, can you tell which of the three fencing styles they're doing? It's not wholly accurate, let's put it that way, but my best guess is foil, and I think the characters alluded to that too. But for all the research and details that go into Star Trek, they could have done just a little bit more, just to make sure their fencing facts are correct. So the weapons they're using are foils, so it's the, the long skinny one that has a button on the tip and requires fencers to score touches on the opponent's torso only to gain points. But the clothes that they wear are clearly saber clothes. Their entire jacket and the helmet are silver and that means that everything's conducting. So anything wasted up silver and conducting, that's definitely a saber fencer garment. And how would it be different for foil? For foil, the only silver part would be the torso and the bottom edge of their mask. So their mask would actually be black. Interesting. What about from their movements? Is that consistent with either saber or foil? So, yes. Um, well, partly. The way the opponent's score touches, yes, they are using stabbing motions to score. But other than that, the fences are whipping their blades around a bit too much, and that is more characteristic of a saber fencer. But even in saber, you're not supposed to whip around your blades that much. It's a common mistake made by beginner fencers, so I don't blame them. Uh, tell me about their arms. Uh, they, they have their arms raised up above their heads, their back arms, sort of, and the one that's not engaged in the sword play. I've never seen any foil fencer do that, but there is a rationale behind that. So in foil fencing, the hand that does not hold the weapon is 
not a target area, but it can accidentally swing in front of your torso to cover a target area and minimize the target area. And that is a form of cheating. So in fall fencing, you're supposed to keep your non-weapon arm, in this case, it's the left arm, out of the way so it doesn't block any of your target area. Some people tuck it behind their back. Some people put it to their side. But I've never seen anyone raise their non-weapon arm above their head. And actually, this non-weapon arm is very useful in your fencing. It gives you balance. It gives you a burst of speed when you extend it as you're trying to lunge and attack. Other than that, I'm not sure why they're expending energy raising their non-weapon arm. So they should really just keep it behind them, sort of tucked away? Or relaxed. It's not wrong. It's better than cheating, so <laughs> it's just not very typical. You don't want to waste energy whenever it's not necessary, but you still want to keep your arm slightly engaged. So when you actually have to lunge and attack, you can open up like a starfish. And that actually gives you a slight boost in speed when you are trying to extend and reach a person. And you have to do that with a very sudden and quick movement to catch your opponent off by surprise and they don't have much time to run away. So for me, I I do saber, but even when I do fall, I keep my arm in the same position. I put it loosely next to my hip, pretty much in an extended, but still not completely straight position. And so when I want to attack, I imagine myself pushing up away from a wall as if trying to add extra momentum to my attack. So your back arm, which was sort of hanging loosely by mm. your side, all of a sudden extends in the opposite direction as the arm with the sword to give you that extra boost of speed going forward. Yes, and it keeps me balanced too because I'm lunging and I'm so I'm very, very low. I see. Yeah, I like that. Extend as a starfish, like you yes. said. That's that's really beautiful. Yeah. Alright, let's keep uh, let's keep watching this. And raise your hand if you see something that you I like their footwork. Notice that to move forward, their front foot extends out first, heel first, and then followed by the back foot. So no running motion, no crisscrossing the legs. Basically, they're moving front and back. They're not moving sideways, and that's very important. You want to be in control of that distance. All right, so Picard just scored a touch on Guinan. It was a stabby motion where his sword sort of bent because it was encountering Guinan's torso. From that small snippet, it's very clear that they're doing foil, right? Yes. His sword bent a little too much, making me think that he could have began his attack at a slightly further distance. So if you go closer, once again, it's very dangerous because usually when you're in striking distance, so is your opponent. And so if you are not attacking already when you're so close, your opponent might take advantage of that and strike first. So he got lucky for scoring first. <laughs> well, Guinan's not especially experienced at fencing, as she'll soon explain in this scene. But um, yeah, so I, I get your point where if you are too close and you score that touch, that will be represented by your blade bending too much because the perfect kind of touch is accomplished when you're just barely in blade range. Okay, let's watch a little more. I like the sport. Last week when you scored two touches, you liked it well enough. Today, you were dropping your foil. You kept letting me inside. 
One thing I've noticed that's very interesting is that the hilt of their foils are shaped in a French grip. That means it's just long and straight. In typical foils, you usually have a slightly curved trident kind of hilt where you have a, very, a fixed position of where your thumb and your first two fingers go. So you can't move around on your hilt. Where you grip on your foil will cause the blade to always be of the same length. But for a French grip hilt like Picard and Guinan are using, they can move their hands up and down this hilt. And if they move it all the way to the edge of the hilt, that extends the length of the blade and gives them a longer distance to work with to attack their opponent. In the middle of their second bout, Guinan lowers her foil and grabs her leg, appearing to have pulled a muscle. This causes Picard to lower his guard out of concern for his longtime friend. You all right? Emerging from her faint, Guinan strikes Picard square in the chest and says, You felt sorry for me. Look what it got you. I like the symbolism of fencing and pity, but of course if you have a ref and you have sportsmanship, once we notice someone's injured, we don't take advantage of that. I've fenced where I've rolled my ankle and fallen on the floor, or my opponent has fallen on the floor with a rolled ankle. And even without a ref, the natural thing for us to do is to stop and help the other person up. So I would have done what Picard has done. I would never have left up and started attacking again. Fencing is a gentleman's sport. You get issued black cards or red cards if you use excessive force or you go into tantrums and start throwing your gear around. A red card means that your opponent scores the point that you're about to earn and a black card means you're banned from that entire tournament and possibly the next one. Wow. So you, you're saying that Guinan would have earned maybe a red card or possibly even a black card for having disobeyed the fencing code of conduct here to prove her point? If I were the referee, I would probably give a red card. I guess one warning for a warning, as Guinan was trying to warn Picard that the Borg that they have on their ship could be potentially dangerous. Let's now turn to the Star Trek Picard episode called Absolute Candor. In this thrilling episode, we meet a young Romulan refugee named Elnor. As a kid, Elnor is adopted by a group of Romulan warrior nuns called the Kowat Milat on the relocation hub on planet Vashti. When Picard visits Vashti as part of his relocation efforts, he teaches young Elnor how to fence. So many years have passed in Picard's time since he was in that scene fencing with Guinan, and now when he's fencing with a young Elnor. Do you think Picard's fencing skills have improved from what you've seen in this scene? He has used very different moves, but this time it's almost definitely that he's fencing Sabre, not Foil. Sure, he's still scoring his touches by bending his stick and stabbing. And technically you can do that with Sabre too, although that's not as common. But the parries he's using is definitely a Sabre parry. There's one move where he swings his right arm to the side and points his stick point down. That's definitely a Sabre parry, where you use your entire hilt to push your opponent's hilt 
point down and then you bring your entire blade up and slam it onto your opponent. He, <laughs> he does try to do that, right? Against Elnor. Yeah. He sort of blocks Elnor with his sword pointed down and then rotates it such that his sword makes this windmill arc motion and then brings it on top and, and Elnor then has to parry him by raising his own sword upwards so you're saying that they're really fencing saber here now why again is that not a foil move so for foil you score with the point so it is to your advantage that even your parries you have to keep your point facing towards your opponent because that's the only way you score but if you do that kind of parry you can still follow up with a whipping motion and a slashing motion or sweeping motion, and all that would land touches on your opponent as long as your blade grazes your opponent. But for foil, the motion is too big that you'll never make it in time to land the stabbing touch to score a point. Got it. Thunder! Our tongue, who though wanting in practice, had a profound theory, redoubled his agility. Shusak, anxious to put an end to this, springing forward, aimed a terrible thrust at his adversary. But the latter parried it. What does parry while... mean? I'll show you tomorrow. And while Shusak was recovering himself... I feel like Dantanion... maybe Picard didn't really teach Elnor the necessary parry that he's supposed to do. So if you notice, Elnor is much, much shorter than Picard. So the best parry you can do if you're a short person like me is you bring the blade up to about forehead level and keep your blade in a horizontal motion, like as if you were lifting weights with one arm, bench pressing with one arm, that kind of motion. If you're short, that blocks almost any kind of attack because your opponent has to pretty much reach down and slam towards you. And if you're short, that's pretty much where the blade's going to come from and you can block pretty much any attack that comes your way. So that's your advice for Elnor, yes. is to use that horizontal parry going upwards. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be to Picard to improve his form and defeat Elnor? He's doing a pretty good job defeating Elnor, from what I can say. <laughs> he has excellent footwork. His footwork is such that his back foot is perpendicular to his front foot, and his front foot is pointing towards his opponent. His legs are slightly bent, and that's very impressive. It doesn't look like it's bent very much, it's sort of like a squatting semi-sitting position. But actually, if you do it for like five minutes, your legs become so sore. So he's keeping to that, and that speaks very well of his footwork. Between the two of us, my knees are not what they used to be. Other than that, it seems like he scored a touch on Elnor, but he is not obviously not lunging to hit Elnor. So that means he could have begun his attack from much further away. He could have a large step and open up. His arm isn't even fully extended. And that means that he's way too close when he's attacking Elnor. And so he's wasting on that distance. Naturally, Picard has a much greater advantage than Elnor because he's tall. So he can begin his attack from much further away. And Elnor has to go closer to actually reach Picard. But maybe Picard is going easy on him because he's working within the same distance that Elnor has given his height. 14 years later... Picard swings by Vashti once again, this time to recruit Elnor's swordsmanship. But things don't go quite as planned. Stricken by poverty and injustice, the world of Vashti is no longer safe for visitors. 
and the Romulans, who remember Picard's betrayal, finally have their chance at revenge. In the episode's climactic scene, Picard is pitted in a duel to the death against an angry ex-Romulan senator. All right, so now we're watching the battle scene between the Romulan senator and Picard, who is in this fight unwillingly. And Picard, once again, he puts his arm up by his head, just like he was with Guinan. It's not wrong, but I just find it very strange people do that. Um, And so this is a, a fight to the death really. It's not a fencing match. It's not a sport. So it's no longer about scoring touches. It's about really disabling and disarming your opponent. Um, so in what way do you think that this situation is different from fencing as a sport? What changes about your movement and your attitude towards things when you are fencing for life and death? So I've never been in that situation, so I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but Picard is going to use his fencing skills to fight. Yeah, that's a misconception. Fencing is not really a self-defense sport. If someone challenged me to a sword fight, I probably wouldn't win. Fencing does not give me the skills to protect myself. But I've always imagined that if there's trouble and I have a sword with me, I can look intimidating enough to scare off the other person. But I do not actually know how to protect myself with it. I can possibly stab your eye, but that's about it. (laughs) For fencing, the goal is to score a point before your opponent does. And so if you're a few milliseconds faster, you don't care about being hit or not. That's not how you win. You just want to be faster. So it's to my advantage to be faster and use less force so that my blade is quicker and doesn't whip about as much than someone with gigantic motions, swinging motions that land blows that really hurt, but are much slower than mine. So if I were to do it life and death, I would really care about not getting hit at all. I wouldn't care much about speed. I would make sure that none of my opponent's touches even land. So I would pay much more attention to my parries. Right, because in fencing, even if you get hit, as long as you hit the opponent a few milliseconds before, the point is yours. But if such a situation were to occur in a life and death fight, you'd just both be dead. The only referee is death himself. (laughs) All right, so let's watch this and see what happens. So it was a very brief scene where Picard was actually in action. Uh, But can you pick apart that specific move that he did? Picard's parry is a cross between the head parry that I was talking about, the one that Elnor should have used, and a side parry. So it would have been a bit more efficient if he stuck to just the head parry. His arm is extended out, so that's really painful on the elbow joint. He should have brought his sword a bit closer to him and risked the opponent's sword getting a little closer, but that would not be so painful on the wrist and the elbow. That would give you much more strength to control your parry. So by having a more compact arm position Mm -hmm. with your defending blade very close to your head it's actually a stronger block than if you had your arm outstretched the way that Picard does. Right. His current parry is very flimsy so if the opponent uses a lot of force you don't have a lot of strength to block such a big swing. 
So you're actually saying that it's sort of counterintuitive. The closer your own blade is to your head, the more strength you actually have to make sure that your own blade doesn't get pushed back into your head. Right. It's something like, like for, for basketball, you want to wind the ball back before you shoot. This is the same thing. If you shoot with your arms outstretched, you don't have a lot of like springy motion to throw the ball very far. Oh, I see. So you really want to keep your arm locked close to your body so that you can apply that springing motion to resist the force of the blade coming at you. Yes. Oh, very good. Very good. Well, luckily, Picard uh, survives this encounter and then throws away his blade to refuse to fight any longer. Then Elnor steps in. Let's watch that. And Elnor uses a move that is completely foreign to the sport of fencing. Definitely. He crossed his legs too many times. <laughs> crossed your legs meaning you you made actual steps forward like you're walking or running. Because in fencing, you're always sort of like hopping or skipping. Generally, yes. Um, there are some subtleties, as I mentioned. You can cross your legs and rush forward at your opponent in a running motion if you do foil or epee. But I'm not sure if you twist in the air and jump like that. I'm not sure if that would be allowed in fencing. <laughs> well, the next time you're on the fencing strip, maybe you should try an Elmore move. If I could, if my helmet's not too heavy, but fences usually are connected with cords and wires. So if you do that kind of move, you definitely get tangled up in that cord and trip. Hmm. So it's definitely not advisable. <laughs> cool. Thanks for joining me on Strange New Worlds to talk about one of your many passions, fencing. No problem. Stop, 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 stop. That was Xi'an Kim, a graduate student in molecular engineering, science writer, and former NCAA fencer. I hope that you've learned something new about the sport of fencing today and its many intricacies and have a better appreciation for its portrayal in Star Trek. Let me practice my absolute candor here and say that I love that the Star Trek Picard writers were able to include Picard's passion for fencing in a very touching way, making it the part of himself that he shares with young Elnor. It's one of the many nostalgia buttons that the show presses so well, and helps flesh out Jean-Luc, reminding us that he's a real human being who has other interests besides exploring space and cataloging nebulae. I'll be back next time with a conversation with author Seth Jacob, a Star Trek fan who's written a brand new comic book titled Astrobiology. Seriously, how cool is that? Until then, see you out there.